Alright all you movie junkies, it is time for the SLS Cast, with your hosts Matt and Tim. And welcome to episode 110 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it is the sailing episode, more specifically the sailboat episode of the SLS Cast, because the International 110, or the 110, is a one-design racing sailboat. It was designed in 1939 by a wonderful person named C. Raymond Hunt. Now, if you take the Raymond and the H out, you do have cunt. But I don't think that's what he was going for. And with that wonderful little bit of knowledge, I, of course, am the intrepid Matt. And I am Tim, the co-host who is obligated by law to mention that I work for Sony Pictures. Do you have to say this every episode now? <laughs> I th- Probably. I think so. <laughs> Maybe we'll we might just need add to... it to the disclaimer at the bottom of the episode. Yeah, <clears throat> or, yeah, we might need to record the opening. For now on, uh, you cannot call me just Tim. You have to, you have to say Tim, sponsored by Sony Pictures Entertainment. Oh no, we're not sponsored. There is no money, <laughs> <laughs> unless, of course, you know they they pitched in for that lovely little mouth organ you have there. That that should be a porn name right there, tying into last week. Lovely little mouth organ. So well, what key is that uh, in? Is that is it like is that in D or G? What, what key? Key of C. Key of C. This go. is the key of C. This is a lovely uh, Marine Band Horner eighteen ninety classic eighteen ninety six harmonica. Uh, you play this for the blues, and boy, do I feel blue. So this this fits uh, me currently uh, not really i lied I, I really don't feel blue i feel quite delicious to be honest how about you matt how, how has your past week been before i keep talking and just say more things that just make no sense uh well let's see here um aside from not being able to find my Honer harmonica in my drawer so I could play my harmonica with you. Uh, do you so, like putting organs in your mouth? Well, I wanted to do. I wanted to have a mouth organ moment with you, and I could not. So I'm going to have to chastise my children and find out where they probably took it. Uh, mine's in the key of G, though. <laughs> uh, at any rate, um, my week has been pretty ho hum. Started school officially today, and uh, doing. Geology, Spanish is starting a little bit later. I got a call from the school and they decided to push it to a late start class, and so that'll be fun. And um, so I, I went to geology today, and I have probably the weirdest geology professor. Uh, he's very nice guy. Um, he he's not like overly strict, doesn't seem rude or anything like that. Um, it's just he is so immensely all over the place with his lecture that you would think you might be bored because the subject matter isn't really all that interesting. It's, it's historical geology uh, for those who want to fall asleep now. And I, yet because he, he like wanders off, he literally got up like four times was talking, and like something would remind him of something. So he would just wander away 
and look for it and go grab a rock or a tub of minerals or something. And he would, like, leave the classroom, just wander away. We're like, so at least you're not going to fall asleep, even if it's not that interesting, because you're just waiting to see what this guy is going to do next. Uh, so maybe that was intentional. I don't know. But uh, so I'll let you, I'll keep you posted on this guy. Are you sure he's? Uh, maybe we can have him on the show. Can, can, he, can we? Can we have him as a guest co-host? <laughs> I'm gonna probably have to wait until the end of the semester because you know we can't have any kind of favoritism going on or anything. Oh, you can. I mean, we could, but it, you know, I'm, I'm trying to do this thing the right way. I suppose I don't know. But aside from that, honestly, not a whole lot really happened in my world. Um, uh, let's see. No, I'm trying to. Oh. Uh, read the uh, Divergent series over the last week. Really? Yes. How many books is that? Three. Three? Uh, so yeah. you read three books in a yawn novel book series. Yes. Over the past week. Oh, yes. And uh, they were written for, I guess, teenagers or whatever, because it's really easy read. I mean, each book, I don't know, they're only about 500 pages. So I'm did you buy a box of tampons to go with those books? I did not. It kind of started off as kind of a pissing contest between me and my wife. She had started reading it. She's got some kind of book club thing going on or whatever, and so she had started reading it. It was on the back of the toilet. I was bored. And then because <laughs> I started reading it, she got mad that I was reading it because I can read faster than her. I'm like, it's not like I'm stopping you from reading it. So she literally came and grabbed the book from my hands. I was like, oh, do we want to play this game? So I grabbed my tablet and went on Amazon and then kindled them. And then went and read the two books. And then she had the third book. And since she wasn't even on it yet, I went and read the entire third book. And I will tell you right now... um, if you thought the movie wasn't really all that great, I never saw the movie. The movie looked terrible. Uh, so a buddy of mine, actually Jeremy from the Wow Factor show, had said, "Oh, I like this. I like the Divergent series," and so I decided to give it a shot. Um, and after reading, if you didn't like the movie, you're gonna fucking hate the books. They're terrible. Oh my god! Don't even waste your time. I, I just read them because you know you start something and then you just want to kind of see how the story ends. Terrible, terrible. And the third book is the worst, by far the worst. I, uh, yeah. Um, well, I guess it's suiting that you keep it on the toilet. Yeah, that is. It. Or you but found it, you found it, it on the toilet. To me, that should have told you to me, something. They would be in the toilet, but uh, you know. So did you like? Since you've got it on the toilet, you came across it on the toilet. Did hmm. you limit yourself only to reading the book series while you were, you know? Dropping the ki- the Cosby kids off at the swimming pool? Uh, no. Once I got to reading them, I decided I was just going to go ahead and read them. Real, so uh, you you shat that entire time. Yes. You're like, yes. I am going to drink took, uh, a lot of prune I juice. Had, I drank super colon blow, and, had, yeah. and I was ready. I could actually go and get a colonoscopy, I think, at this point. But <laughs> And after every page you read, you would like tear it off and wipe your ass with it (laughs) (laughs) more or less no i mean seriously i I just i would not recommend this i don't understand how it was popular again maybe it's because it's for teenagers and they don't necessarily know any better um you know and the girl who wrote it she's like you know 17 or something i don't know but uh hey she's got more money than me so i guess she did something right yeah wow um well i went to something that I guess you can equate the smell to uh, the place I went to on Friday, and that would be a anime convention. All right. Um, I didn't go there because I'm a fan of anime. In fact, I do not like anime. I'm talking about like the crazy 
you know, like Dragon Ball Z's really, I mean, in my opinion, it's, it's a lot of this stuff is really weird. I love the beautiful, uh, like Totoro and, um, you know, the, the shows like Howl's Moving Castle. I love all that stuff. That stuff is fantastic. But there's some other really trippy stuff that even when you were on drugs, it is very unsettling. And yeah, so I went there because a friend of mine was in town from Houston and I, I met up with them. And, um, you know, I, I, I was, because I, I've been to various uh, cons before, various anime conventions before, never to partake in the actual convention itself. But uh, the hanging out and the drinking and the boozing and the whatever, you know, libations that, you know, present themselves. So you were just yeah. basically looking for an excuse to dress up as Sailor Moon? Yeah, I mean, I bought this dress <laughs> years ago. Now, I, <laughs> I like to mix my... But it's funny because, yeah, I mean, it, there's just like a whole bunch of different characters and a lot of smells going on. I mean, there are some really nice people and there are some really bizarre people. You have people that smell like flowers and food. You have other people that smells like grease and a dirty tampon. So you never know what you can expect at one of these things. But while I was at this con, I was introduced to something, and this is a real thing. Um, let me pull up this article so I can best um, explain it. Um, now, this is, a front, this is a Dangerous Minds article about this product, and yes, this is a real product. Now, Matt, are you a fan of taking selfies, or do you have one of those tripods, those selfie pods that you see all the kids using nowadays to take professional-looking selfies. Oh, the narcissistic? See what I did there? Huh? The narcissistic? <laughs> narcissistic. Well, because it's yeah. a stick that you use to take a selfie, which means you're narcissistic to use, so it's a narcissistic. Yeah, I mean, a professional selfie is a little... I don't know, it doesn't really go together, really. <laughs> but... You know, if you thought taking having a having a rod take a take a picture of you and your friends at the edge of the Grand Canyon before one of you falls to your death, what if you really wanted to take a picture of your ass? You know, you you, you cannot possibly take a picture of your ass with your regular selfie stick. No, no, no. To take a picture of your ass, you need something that isn't <laughs> that is called the Belfie stick. This is a real thing. Um, yeah, it's, it's the Belfie stick. And I'm reading these quotes from Dangerous Minds. Uh, it's an article about the Belfie stick. And um, they're quoting, I guess, what the box says. With our bendable stick, you can position your backside without the need of a mirror and shoot the exact angle you are looking for. Bend in ways you never thought possible with our patent-pending design. The belting... The, the belting... The Belfing Stick, 100% satisfaction guaranteed. Our users are our biggest indicator of selfie trends, being that it's the type of photo they post most often. The chief technology, uh, uh, Kevin Deegan, the chief technology office of ON.com, told Business Insider, quote, We've noticed a huge spike in users taking butt selfies in recent months, so the natural next step was for us to develop a device to assist our users in taking one. In all quotes. And there are actually some, uh, besides this Belfy stick being sold out completely, there are some testimonials. 
like this. Lauren in Los Angeles, California, quote, I never again have to take pictures in the bathroom. I can't tell you how many times I've dropped my iPhone trying to take pics. I love it. Thank God they invented the Belfie stick. <laughs> Ellen from Lansing, Michigan. I can't believe they invented this. It's totally insane. Everyone is hurting, holding their phones, trying to get the right precise angle. Bend over, snap a pic, and done. Belfie stick rules. With the Z and exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Um, and they do note on this website that they do hope this is a internet hoax and not a real thing. But I don't know. It looks too good to not be true, to be honest. The Belfie stick. I have no response to that. Yes. So are you going to go run out and buy one for you and the family? Because I know how many ass pictures you like to post on the Twitter and stuff. Mm-hmm. Although, in kind of slightly off-kilter related news to that, uh, the actual selfie stick that you see people using was listed in a book back in the late 80s um, <laughs> as one of the most useless inventions because someone actually had made one and it was designed for like little 35 millimeter cameras so you could take pictures of yourself back then but they thought that that was stupid and useless to take pictures of yourself back in the late 80s apparently how wrong they were <laughs> but um yeah. and you know that person is like punching themselves in the face right now like god damn it i should have just stuck with it the fucking patent expired ah. uh, anyway yeah so. oh well ah <sighs> so Shall we go ahead and get to the news then? Yes. <laughs> okay. About half a step from just dumping this drawer out to see if I can find it. This might be a good time to mention that, uh, I mean, I don't know if, if Matt, you've always called it the mouth organ, but Craig, I heard Craig Ferguson call it the mouth organ the first time some years ago. So, I want to throw that in there before people bitch, or if people do bitch about our show. I don't want to give them... I don't want this to be their reason to bitch about the mouth organ. Fair enough. And on that note, literally, <laughs> it is the news! gonna get things started here from flickeringmyth.com courtesy of luke owen now this is kind of tying into uh something that uh tim had reported right before we went on our winter break 
George Takai petitions against all white casting choices for a Kira adaptation. Yes, following on from the controversy surrounding the all white casting of Exodus Gods and Kings, which turned out to be a stellar move, by the way. Legendary Star Trek actor and King of the Memes, George Takei, has spoken out against the proposed casting choices for the American adaptation of popular anime Akira. It was reported by Deadline that the cast choices included Robert Pattinson, Andrew Garfield, and James McAvoy for Duo, and Gartlett Headland, Michael Fassbender, Chris Pine, Joaquin Phoenix, and Justin Timberlake for Canada. Quote, the manga and anime phenomenon is mostly white in this country. And it originated in Japan, and of course it has a huge Asian fan following. But it's the multi-ethnic Americans who are fans of Akira and manga. The idea of buying the rights to, to do that, and in fact change it, seems rather pointless. If they're going to do that, why don't they do something original? Because that, Because what they do is offend Asians, number one. Number two, they offend the fans. End quote. Now, basically, he also goes around, uh, Takei goes on and references The Last Airbender because, you know, Shama la 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 and did the same thing and it flopped. And I can guarantee you it wasn't the casting choices that caused it to flop. But uh, it didn't help any. I'm, I'm willing to grant you that. I think there's a little bit of a disconnect, though. Uh, while I certainly agree that Every Asian role should be Asian it, it, when possible. Um, a lot of the anime that you see, you can tell in the facial features of the characters that they are not explicitly Asian by descent. Even when giving um, people certain Asian or ethnic names, the characters themselves still appear in a non-Asian fashion. And so backing that by putting someone who isn't Asian in a role like that is not necessarily a default stance to be offensive to anyone at all. Um, does that mean you should completely just take away any kind of originality or uh, any anything that is explicitly Asian or specifically Japanese to from the mangas when you're doing the casting? Of course not. No, you need to keep things as authentic as possible. But I don't think it's just automatically something that is meant to offend anyone or doing anything that's against marketing. Takei goes on, though, to talk about how it's important to bring Asians to the forefront because there have been a lot of gains made by black actors and actresses. And he, he immediately says, you know, oh, well, you can think of Denzel, you can think of Samuel L. Jackson, and these are names that you can immediately think to the forefront and you can bankroll a movie based on names like, names like those. But you can't do the same thing with Asian actors. And he does say that there's lots of... Uh, that, that, there, that, that we have lots of uh, supporting roles and everything, and, and not just in stereotypical fashions. I mean, really good supporting roles that are going to Asians today. But he's wanting to see it stepped up, and he thinks that movies like Akira are a way to do that. Um... I'd go back to my default stance on that, but that's because 
unlike Tim, I am a fan of anime. <laughs> I love Bleach. I, uh, uh, you know, Death Note and all those wonderful things. I'm a big fan of that stuff. But, um, and so maybe that's where my understanding of, of that stuff comes from. But, uh, I don't know. Tim, what do you think? Should, d- does, does Mr. Takei have a point? Uh, do you think he's maybe, um, uh, taking offense too soon or... No, I no think comment? he does have a point because I I remember Akira. Akira was big when I was in elementary school. I mean, it's always been big, but I remember, you know, people in fourth grade, fifth grade, I even got into Akira. Um, those are the type of I get animes that I enjoy. You know, it's just a really good movie, great sci-fi movie, you know, action movie, thought-provoking, and the animation is beautiful. Um, I really dug it. And... I I mean it, it's set in Asia. It's about Asians. I really don't understand. I, I can't see an American being called Akira, you know, or an American being. Called, I don't. I mean, I'm sure there are other like, you know, uh, obvious Asian names, character names in that in the in that story. So I can't see Leonardo DiCaprio or or you know a, another white American actress being called Soon Lee or Soon Yi or. You know anything like that, for example? So, I don't know. I, there, there are plenty of Asian actors, and I think, in a way, people that are uh, that are going against George Takei. Uh, I, I, I mean, I, I really don't see their point because one of the biggest audiences that the American box office or the American filmmakers and studios are trying to reach are is the Asian, uh, the Asians, <laughs> the Asian audience. You know, that's why with the Transformer movies, the um, the the I think it was the Avengers or no Iron Man three, they shot all these additional scenes that were for the Asian audience to to include them into our pop culture, uh, or more so into the like the superhero movie pop culture and and all that jazz. So there's an audience. We know that there are great Asian actors. I don't see why we couldn't make. I mean, it could still be an American-made movie. Even better, it could be an Amer- a joint American-Asia, you know. Both uh, countries could make the movie. And use both talents, you know, in some way. So, I, I don't know. I think I, I think I think in some way I can understand what Takai Teke- is saying. And that it is going to... I mean, th- there is going to be some kind of alienation... Uh, if they do cast it as all white American actors, you know, especially since Akira is so well known. So. Interesting. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm just looking at all the pictures from the actual cast. And again, I, I guess I just go back to what I think of in the art style and the presentation of the actual characters themselves and they and you know yeah it's interesting anyways what do you got sir so some of the most i think probably the most interesting piece of news that broke this past week um pertains to the upcoming batman superman movie uh this was broke by latinoreview.com which I remember uh, we were talking about this a year or so ago, and you were pretty perplexed, Matt, how LatinoReview.com is breaking all this news about 
all these superhero movies. Like they they had the scoop somehow, and it just I think it just kind of caught both of us um, off guard. But from Latino Review. Com. This was posted a few days back. An article entitled, Is There a Sec- um, Is there a Secret Ben Affleck Batman Movie Coming Out This October? This was posted on January 9th of this year. And it says this, Brace yourselves. A person claiming to have an iPhone video of the teaser for Batman vs. Superman has posted a single screenshot of what he or she claims is the film's last title. And as in the last title card of uh, the end of the trailer, and it says up top, Batman v Superman, part underneath that, part one, Enter the Night, and that one's supposed to open 10-23-2015, and then below that says part two, Dawn of Justice, 3-25, March 25th of 2016, and how the, how the, how the screen is, I'll, I'll, I'll link this, um, this uh, this review or this article on the site so everybody can see it. Uh, see how so many people have been fooled by it because it looks like a legit thing. Like somebody made this and actually took their iPhone and took a picture of their screen, which, you know, I got to give them credit. It was pretty smart. And it also looks like it very well could be the end title of the Batman vs. Superman uh, trailer. Um, but, of course, once this broke... Everybody who is interviewing anybody who has any toes, you know, within the in the in the Batman Superman, you know, waters, questioned everybody about this. Does you know they want to get down to the bottom of it? Well, Henry Cavill, who plays Clark Kent Superman and Man of Steel in the upcoming Batman vs Superman film, debunked this rumor and said, "No, it's a hoax. Batman vs Superman will most definitely be." a single movie and it will just be Dawn of Justice and that one is definitely coming out March 25th of next year so uh, yeah so if any of you guys ha- did hear about this and didn't hear the debunking um, I'm sorry because apparently a lot of people were actually looking forward to this so you know yeah what do you think Matt I mean do you think that they should release a new Batman movie before Dawn of Justice, just so we can get used to Ben Affleck? Or what do you think? Even though it's not going to happen, I don't know if maybe you had any comments or anything about that particular aspect. Nah, I I think... I really do think that they're on the right track with this, because um, when Man of Steel didn't do as well as they'd hoped. I mean, it, it did fine, but it did not do as well as they had hoped, uh, especially coming off the heels of Dark Knight Trilogy. I think they realized that they had stories to tell and they had things that they wanted to do, but the Marvel formula was not going to work for them. And I think the way that they're doing this now by allowing the series to just naturally morph itself into Justice League is much better because I think it's going to allow them to introduce other characters that they perhaps would be able to get potential spinoffs from and then create devoted followings for that. Because they never know, they're not going to be able to know ahead of time 
if they're going to get an Iron Man on their hands or if they're going to have a Captain America on their hands or if they're going to have a Black Widow on their hands, someone who makes a great supporting character but not, but is not worthy of getting their own film. And going the way that they're going now I think is really good because it allows for great character development, interesting casting choices like Ben Affleck, and then, hey, if it spins off and people, there's just the they're frothing at the mouth for more Batman or more Wonder Woman. Well, then great. Now we know where we need to go and we'll make those movies as they come. There you go. All right. Well, next up from me, uh, from MSN.com, courtesy of Maane Kachaturian. I apologize if I butchered that name. Chris Pine deeply regrets not getting Jack Ryan right. Yes, Chris Pine doesn't think Paramount will be releasing a sequel to Jack Ryan's Shadow Recruit anytime soon. The titular star of the rejuvenated franchise told MoviePhone that the film's low box office turnout has likely killed its future. Quote, No, I don't think it's made enough money for that to happen. That's one of my deepest regrets, that we didn't totally get that right. It's a great franchise, and if it's not me, then I hope it gets a fifth life at this point. It's just great. I love the spy genre. I hope it's done again and with a great story. End quote. The spy thriller earned $50.6 million in the U.S., not even matching its already low $60 million production budget for a worldwide take of $135.5 million. Director Kenneth Branagh had said that he'd be happy to helm another installment since there were so many stories left to tell in the Jack Ryan world. What do you think, Tim? Uh, I personally am a big fan of Kenneth Branagh. I know you are as well. Uh, I actually enjoy his directing. This particular movie was okay. Um, I believe I gave it three stars, maybe three and a quarter. Um, Way back when, when I reviewed it, but... uh, I, I actually haven't seen it yet. Still? So, okay. Yeah, still. It's it's on the Netflix. It's on the queue. Well, all right. So, But, I mean, I don't know. Granted, it didn't do all that great in the U.S., but it made nearly triple its budget. So I'm thinking it's at least got a shot to get a... Sure, I think so also. I mean, Chris Pine is only going to get bigger, you know, uh, uh, you know, become more popular as a star. And... You know, I think he deserves it. If I mean, you don't really see passion like a director and an actor wanting to make another movie or improve on their last movie with the sequel. And, you know, so I think, well, what it seems like when people show that passion, they, you know, more likely than not, they get that shot. You know, obviously the funding is there. And especially if the want is there. And it turns out a lot of people really like the Jack Ryan character. So... I don't know. I mean, like you said, if we don't get it with him, we'll more than likely get another Jack Ryan movie with somebody else, you know, in the next few years. Right on. All right, man. What else you got? All right. I have a couple RIPs to talk about. First one being Samuel Goldwyn Jr. He passed away at the ripe old age of 88 years old. Um, he is a one of the more famous producers out there. He did, uh, he, he did a lot of movies. His final movie that he produced was 2013's Ben Stiller Adventure Comedy Drama, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. 
Uh, before that, he did Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. He did The Preacher's Wife, Rockadoodle, Stella, Outback, Mystic Pizza, Fatal Beauty, Once Bitten, The Golden Seal, The Visitor, Come Back, uh, Charleston Blue, uh, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, The Proud Rebel, The Shark Fighters, Man with the Gun. Um, you know, his name is popular because also his... Uh, he had a he had a father also Samuel Goldwyn, you know Metro Goldwyn Goldwyn May, uh, Mayor, you know it's a very popular, uh, well respected name. So it's always sad to hear of people like that passing. So that was Samuel Goldwyn Jr. passed away at the age of 88 years old. Um, but the one R.I.P. that I really wanted to make sure that one of us mentioned was Taylor Negron. He passed away at the young age of 57 years old. He's been battling cancer for the past two years, and unfortunately, the cancer uh, the cancer won. Um, and I'm going to read a little passage here from a Screen Crush article. Taylor Negron, star of Fast Times at Ridgemont High and The Last Boy Scout, passes away at 57. And um, it says this, he was a comedian, he was an actor, who was best known to audiences for The Last Boy Scout in his brief but exceptionally memorable role in Fast Times at Richmond High, has sadly passed away. He was just 57 years old. Um, his cousin, Three Dog Night band member Chuck Negron, uh, posted a video in which he announced that his cousin had passed, uh, which he said this, quote, I want to inform you that my cousin, Taylor Negron, passed away. His mother, his brother, Alex, and my brother, Renee, and his wife, Julie, were all there with him. May he rest in peace. I just want all you people who knew him and loved him to know that he passed away. End quote. Negron was a student of fame acting teacher Lee Strasberg and also studied under the legendary Lucille Ball. He made his film debut in the 1982 comedy Young Doctors in Love and went on to appear in the classic film Fast Times at Ridgemont High, in which he memorably played the pizza delivery man. He also appeared in 80s classics like Better Off Dead and River's Edge before landing the role of the villain Milo in the Tony Scott film The Last Boy Scout. Throughout the years, he co-starred in Angels in the Outfield and Biodome and guest starred on shows like Friends and Curb Your Enthusiasm. In 2012, he once again played a pizza delivery guy for Fast Times at Ridgemont High director Amy Heckerling's horror comedy, Vamps. He had 130 acting credits on his resume. And though you might know his name, you will definitely recognize his face. And that was uh, definitely one reason why I wanted to mention uh, that, to, uh, that to you, of his passing. Why I thought it was important was... Because, well, Matt and I were talking about him, and I remember watching him uh, when I, I, like, being four or five, and, and and remembering him in movies. Like, oh, he was that guy. I mean, I never knew his name, but I knew that guy. I knew his voice. I knew his mannerisms. And Matt did note, uh, point out earlier on that he was kind of like the Seth Rogen of his time. You know, he always played the same character, but in some way, he was always enjoyable and reliable to watch. So, he passed away, Taylor Negron. At the age of 57. Well, I think this is going to bring me to my final piece of news here. From comicbook.com, courtesy of Joe Comic Book. Beetlejuice sequel to be set in present day and bring back Michael Keaton 
according to screenwriter. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, while there hasn't been much official information in regards to the Beetlejuice sequel, screenwriter Seth Graham Smith has just confirmed a couple things about the film. Unlike the upcoming Ghostbusters reboot, which is starting over with a brand new cast, Graham Smith has rejected the idea of rebooting Beetlejuice. Buried in a piece about Graham Smith in The Hollywood Reporter, the entertainment news site notes that director Tim Burton picked Graham Smith to write the long-delayed Beetlejuice sequel. According to their report, Graham Smith is, quote, rejecting the idea of rebooting the movie with a new star in favor of bringing Michael Keaton back in a sequel set in the present day, end quote. So, it looks like there will be quite a time jump between when Beetlejuice ended and when the new sequel kicks off. It also appears that while Graham Smith wants to bring Keaton back, he won't be overusing the actor in the film. Graham Smith is reportedly taking Keaton's quote, less is more, quote, end quote, advice with the Beetlejuice character. He noted that in the original Beetlejuice film, the title character doesn't appear until almost the midpoint. And on that note, I have to say, nice fucking model! Honk, honk. Was that the end of it? That's it, man. <laughs> Unless oh. you have anything you'd like to add. <laughs> I don't think so, but I will. I guess I'll close the news with uh, two uh, pieces of news. One of them I'll just uh, blow through real quick. Um, it pertains to my work, Sony. Um, there is actually one thing, uh, if you could pick one thing, that good that came out of these email leaks and whatnot. Uh, one of the things that, that got leaked were salaries and... It's not just Sony, but it's studios all around the place, uh, you know, everywhere. And I don't, I mean, I don't know the details. I just know what was reported. Um, but what was reported was that for the upcoming sequel to Snow White and the Huntsman, just entitled The Huntsman, Charlize Theron was getting paid considerably less than her male counterpart, which was, which is Chris Hemsworth. Um, and because of these Sony hacks and leaks, she was able to see how much Hemsworth was going to get paid. So uh, she succeeded in netting a $10 million increase that puts her on par with her male counterpart, Chris Hemsworth. So that is pretty amazing. And Matt, I know you were kind of surprised <laughs> that even Charlize Theron was getting the shaft when it comes to I, a paycheck. I really was. I mean, and I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, I understand Chris Hemsworth's all, you know, he's so hot right now. I mean, I get all that. But, I mean, Charlize Theron is an Academy Award-winning actress who has a lot more wins under her belt than losses. And, she, I mean, there's a lot more Cider House rules for her than there is um, Aeon Flux. You know what I mean? And so... I would have thought for sure, with her pedigree, she'd have been making as much, if not more, than Hemsworth. I mean, you know, Thor is Thor, but the boobs are forever. You know what I mean? So, I was definitely shocked. Unless she ends up getting fake boobs. Well, no, I guess fake boobs last forever. <laughs> they last that longer sense. Than, they last longer than you do, I mean... <laughs> I know. Though, I mean, if you di if, like, if you dig up Dolly Parton in fifty years after she's passed away, everything will be gone except her implants. That's her nipples will be as perky as they were forty-five years ago. There you go. Um, but yes, okay. So the last bit of news pertains to the MPAA. Uh, cue laughter from the audience and let it die down, and let's move on. 
This is from a ScreenCrush.com article entitled The Most Hilariously Weird Film Ratings, uh, Rating Descriptions from the MPAA. Yes, and I'm just going to read a few of them off. Uh, it's, it's very interesting, and I know I've noticed some of these before, especially this first one. This is for Team America World Police, rated R4. Quote, Graphic, crude, and sexual humor, violent images, and strong language, all involving puppets. End quote. Titanic, rated PG-13 for disaster-related peril and violence, nudity, sensuality, and brief language. The Brady Bunch movie, rated PG-13 for, quote, racy innuendos, end quote. <laughs> Jurassic Park. Rated PG-13 for, quote, intense science fiction terror, end quote. Batman Returns. Rated PG-13 for brooding dark violence, end quote. Uh, let's see. Bitter Moon. Rated R for, quote, the strong depiction of a perverse, of a perverse sexual relationship, end quote. <laughs> Breaking Point, rated R for, quote, psychopathic murders, strong sexuality, and language, end quote. And uh, I'll, uh, okay, and I'll do two more. Grumpier Old Men, rated PG-13 for, quote, salty language in innuendos, end quote. <laughs> I feel like that's how they would rate our podcast. For salty language in innuendos. Um, and then finally, Congo rated PG-13 for, quote, jungle adventure terror and action and brief strong language, end quote. Because nothing, cause, nothing can cause a PG-13 rating quite like jungle adventure terror. Yes. <laughs> These are hilarious. Brief historical smoking. <laughs> Yeah, they're really uh, going overboard on the whole smoking thing. Yeah. Yep, that's all I got. Well, then I guess that concludes the news and will bring us to... Discussions with Matt and Tim. This time on Discussions with Matt and Tim. Matt and Tim discuss the Matt Singer article at ScreenCrush.com. Spit Decision. How Breaking Movies in Half is Ruining Hollywood Blockbusters. And now, Discussions with Matt and Tim. Yeah, so... Matt Singer has an op-ed here. And he goes, and, and basically he is using The Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 1 as a case study in how it is that movies especially those based on books, are being broken apart and turned into two movies in the back end so that Hollywood can make more money. Um, he goes on to then cite the initial example of this, the one that, that basically started the flood, the avalanche, which is Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1. Now, I am in the camp of those who enjoyed... Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1. Um, while the movies, while the pair, the last pair of movies came in at a little over $2.2 billion, when adjusted for inflation, had, uh, 
Deathly Hallows Part 1 is actually the lowest grossing in the series. Uh, additionally, when people talk about their favorite movies, Deathly Hallows Part 1 is usually ranked at the bottom. Now, I, however, truly enjoyed Part 1 because it was so much like the book. You actually got to experience the angst of them looking and trying to find all the Horcruxes. You got to really and truly understand what was driving these people finally what was really getting down to the core of who they were and i thought it was great that you were finally getting to see all this and then of course it's leading up to this great huge amazing blow up at the end and then of course they go to part two and they just fuck it all up and i was like but you did so well um so i was very excited initially by this process but then you have that uh, apparently Twilight, which I've I didn't see, so I'm. But apparently they did the same thing, and now apparently Allegiant, uh, the whole Divergent thing, Allegiant's going to do the same thing, and then of course here we have the Hunger Games, and the Hunger Games was just flat out bad. Um, uh, I don't know. I just it, it was boring and drawn out, uh, but so was the book, unfortunately. Um, and yet they didn't stick to the book. So, I gotta say, I think that this is just something where the money grab is in place because the people want the money grab. Uh, it, Matt Singer goes, he, he explains later on in the back third of the article how people want this because they are fans of the books so they want to see everything that was in the books and clearly the formula is working because the people are buying the tickets if they didn't buy the tickets the studios wouldn't keep doing it and so we're kind of at fault as viewers for continuing this cycle by uh, going and seeing these movies I think that there, I, as much as he is right about all of these things, I think that there is still hope for this formula. I think that two things truly reside on this formula. Number one, they start picking better fucking books. That would be good. Um, and two, if you're going to break apart a book to, to give it the true due it deserves, then you need to stick to the book. If you do those two things, and I'm not talking about every single line or every single word because clearly that's not always feasible, but if you stick to the book and you pick good books, I think this formula can bear itself out and be successful both for the viewer and for the studio. Um, I, I mean, I don't know. I've, I'm already talking for four and a half minutes here, so Tim... What do you what do you think? Where are you landing on this article and what I have blathered on about? Yeah, you know, I I think it depends. I okay, I don't think this format will work. I I ah, I, I really don't know how what to say to be honest. Because it depends on on the wh whose hands the, these movies are in, you know, or in what the source material is. Because we all thought, and again, I don't want to rehash my whole uh, Battle of the Five Armies, you know, monologue that I did last week, where I basically talked about how uh, I, I thought Lord of the Rings was 
handled perfectly. Three movies, three books. They cut stuff out. They moved stuff that was from the second book into the first movie, the third book into the second movie. You know, they made it work for three movies. Hobbit? Should it would okay? The Hobbit is one book, two movies, perfectly. Three movies, there is way too much filler. And uh, what I wrote down here on my notes is that movies based on books say that they're trying to be more faithful to the source material, which gives reason to splitting the movies. But whereas a book can explain something in a single sentence, a director might feel compelled to expand on it. The Hobbit was three films, and it should have been two. End result is a lot of filler. And I found this uh, article, which will kind of, I guess, make what I what I said right there, uh, may, maybe make it, um, put a little, make a little sense to it, or give it a little sense, or make some sense, yeah, whatever. It's from io9.com, and uh, it's a chart. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you the name of the article in a little bit, but I just want to uh, tell the chart because it'll give it away in the title of it. Shows you pretty much how long uh, uh, the novels are that do become movies and the length of the film versus the number of pages that it actually adapts. And the, uh, the article is entitled The Third Hobbit Movie Takes Two Minutes to Film One Page of the Book. That was the Battle of the Five Armies. Because they made it into three movies, the film is... 144 minutes long. Pages that were adapted were 72 pages. Minutes per page was 2 minutes. 2 minutes per page out of 72 minutes you have a 144 minute movie. For The Hobbit, the first Hobbit, 169 minutes. Pages adapted, 100 minutes per page, 1.69. The Hobbit, Desolation of Smog. 161 minutes of film. Pages adapted, 121. Minutes per page, 1.33. Then it goes to The Great Gatsby. 143-minute movie, 180 pages were adapted. Um, The Hunger Games, Mockingjay Part 1, 123-minute movie, 177 pages adapted. Chronicles of Narnia, the first, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, 143-minute movie, 208 pages adapted. Um, and then I'll go down to Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, which is, uh, in this list, is the first one uh, to the top, you know, when it comes to the original Lord of the Rings trilogy. 179-minute movie. This was the, the second film. 352 pages were adapted, which equals to um, 51 seconds, or 51 minutes per page, or no, 51 seconds per page. Did I say that right? Yeah. 51 seconds... Uh, per page. Yeah, I just left. Uh, where did I go? Yeah, per page. And then uh, you go down a little bit more, and then you have Lord of the Rings: The Return of the King. Two hundred one minutes uh, was the, the length. That it had four hundred thirty two pages was was the book, so forty seven seconds. And it goes on from there. It even has um, Harry Potter. You know, Harry Potter, Prisoner of Azkaban, 142-minute movie. It adapted 448 pages. Deathly Hallows Part 1, 146 minutes. It adapted 501 pages in 146 minutes. So, as you can see, it depends on, you know, the hands the material is in. It worked for Harry Potter, you know, despite um, whatever liberties it took for Part 2. But for the Hobbit Battle of the Five Armies, that's not the case. You know, I think whenever, and also on top of that, I think when you're splitting a movie 
uh, into three films or in multiple movies when it's just one book or splitting one book into multiple movies, you have to edit the movie so it actually feels like a movie. Like, for example, Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 1. When we talked about it, I said that I just wish it felt like a complete movie, not to where they made the movie just so that it was, you know, to get you ready for the next movie. No, we're all paying 14 bucks. Go see this fucking movie. We want to be entertained completely. We want to have, we want to be, we want to experience some kind of, we want to be fulfilled. You know, we, we want to be entertained. We want to see the action. We want to see, you know, moments. You know, we want to see nuances within the action, within the performances, within the story, nuances within the character. And whenever you do that, whenever you expand a movie when it doesn't need to be, and again, filler, you lose out on a lot of stuff, you know? And it just depends on whose hands the material is in. So that's that's what I uh, I got to say about it. Yeah, and I guess that monologue kind of turned into a monologue. <laughs> no, it's all right. I think we I think in a, in in our own way, I I really kind of think we're more or less saying the same thing. I sure. think I think my aspect is more picking good material and your aspect is putting it in the right hands and i think that's really what everybody is always saying you know well if you get the right stuff and you give it to the right person you know that whole lame cliche of you know if they do it right but i really think that this this article and what and the way we feel about it and the way we're responding to it really shows just exactly how difficult it really is to get it right you know, where you would say one person could do it better. Maybe I think someone else could do it better. Or where I would say, this is good source material. You would say, no, that's terrible source material. It'll never make a good movie. Um, and I, and I think that, I don't know. I, I think that this definitely exposes the flaws in books to movies to begin with. So as, as you know, maybe we need to go and get some more original ideas. What do you think? Yes, uh, I will post my contact info <laughs> on the site. You can reach me at Tim <clears throat> at <laughs> right. Los Angeles, California. That's all you need to put on the on the job offer. Well, I mean, hey, you know what? Here's here's one: the show at slscast.com. Send anything you want there. <laughs> and you can put it to Tim or to me or whatever, and I promise you we'll look at it. Replies in yeah, six and weeks. You, our, our favorite listener, you, you, the one who is listening to this right now. We want to hear from you because you are our favorite listener. We want to know what you think about this. Damn straight. Are I there checked. movies that did it right? Are there movies that sucked? Yes, and I checked. I checked before we started the show, and, and we had nothing but the stuff we've been doing on Twitter. So we haven't heard from anybody for a little while. So, anyways, all right, well, thus concludes another Discussions with Matt and Tim. Next time, there will not be a Discussions with Matt and Tim. Instead, there will be a Three Squared, where Matt and Tim bring up their favorite Taylor Negron movies. Thank you for listening to Discussions with Matt and Tim. And now, it is time for... The Movie! (laughs) 
thought you were getting away without having any more of that. But you are wrong. Uh, all right, so this week's movies are Into the Woods, Big Eyes, and Inherent Vice. Where do you want to start, sir? Into the Woods! <laughs> Over the river and into the woods, to the witch's house we go. Um, into Johnny Depp's pants we go. Yeah, He really thinks about raping little girls wearing red hoods. Oh, yeah. So, Into the Woods, musical fantasy film. Brought to you by Disney. And directed by Rob Marshall. It's based on a, a musical. And stars Meryl Streep, Emily Blunt, James Gordon, Anna Kendrick, Chris Pine, Tracy Ullman, Christine Bernaski, and of course, the irascible Johnny Depp. Uh, this is, of course, the film based on, again, the musical that I had said, but uh, it's about a baker and his wife who have had the misfortune of dealing with a witch who won't let them have kids, and then she want, they, they work out a deal with which they can have kids. Uh, shenanigans ensue where they cross paths with Rapunzel and Red Riding Hood and the wolf and all these wonderful people to get their happy endings, and yet... Sometimes those happy endings aren't so happy. Um, I think for a, a musical that's an adaptation of a musical, uh, with the realm of whimsy that was done, I, I, I give it props for its musical nature, and I think that in terms of performances and voice work and everything, um, very uh, decent job all the way around. I, I didn't really notice any breakthrough, standout performances or anything like that in terms of the singing for me, but um, I... The story is very interesting. Um, it's very pretty to look at. I do definitely think the cinematography, uh, cinematography uh, was really good. It felt to me that there was not as heavy a reliance on CGI. Uh, I, there is, of course, CGI and everything. But I, I got the feeling they actually were attempting more practical effects than what has been the norm as of late. So... All pluses in that department. But at the end of the day, I really kind of feel like this is a little tropey. Um, it's not quite like a live-action version of, you know, Shrek 3 or anything. But, um, but I just, I really felt like the stories were tripping over themselves to put themselves in the front runner for what's the biggest crisis or what's the biggest moral dilemma. Things that you can really do well on stage because of the nature of the stage didn't... I think they probably, honestly, they could have probably cut out some of the twists and turns that took place in in gathering the golden hair and and getting the uh you know the, the red cloak and all this kind of stuff 
and maybe just focused on one or two things and then let those stories really play themselves out. I think in the terms of translation to film, I think that would have done a better service to this material. And I do, however, give them props for not changing a whole lot from the musical. Um, so, but the, on the whole, yeah, um, uh, three stars. I want to say three and a quarter, but three stars. I liked it. Um, but I would probably just encourage you to wait for Blu-ray. I hope, I don't know. Did that even remotely make any sense, Tim? I Sure. Yeah, okay. yeah, I think it did. So were you a fan of the musical before this movie? I will be honest with you, this was my first exposure to it. I did some research oh, really? into the musical so that I could understand, um, so, I, so I could be looking for key differences and stuff to the, sure. uh, to yeah. the film. So, okay, so this came out, the musical, the Broadway show came out in the 80s. And it's a Stephen Sondheim musical, and Bernadette Peters was in it. And I, uh, I have been familiar with this musical for many years, and I've become really familiar with this uh, musical within the past ten. Well, God, almost going on ten years. Yeah, since high school, uh, because of uh, student plays, uh, people performing them at the various high schools, and of course, theater kids listening nonstop to Broadway shows all the time. This was one of those shows up there with Rent and, and Wicked. Oh, yeah, Wicked was the other one that everybody sung. So it was between Into the Woods, Wicked, and Rent. You know, I, I that's how I was exposed to uh, this show. And I got to say, this show has a lot of very inter- uh, intriguing elements to it. Not only is it the story, uh, the storytelling, you have intriguing characters. You have a lot of really dark humor you get a lot of rapey vibes between the Big Bad Wolf and Little Red Riding Hood. But on top of that, you have the baker and the baker's wife. You know, their uh, relationship. With their, you know, the movie plays around with infidelity. There's death. There's grief. Uh, there's poor parenting there at the end. So there's a lot of elements to this movie. Oh, as well as beautiful songs and gorgeous singing. So... I didn't know what to expect uh, when I saw this movie, especially a few months ago uh, when they were doing post-production and they started releasing the stills and costumes, you know, like the the, uh, shots of what the people look like in the movie, the actors look like in the movie. A couple people or somebody, I think it was Sondheim that said, because he's still alive, he's an older gent now, but, you know, he's still alive and he actually worked on this movie as a consultant and possibly even a producer. But he came out and said that, well, because it's a Disney movie, they're going to have to change some things. So, of course, I was a little worried about the outcome of this film. Because if you start taking elements away from the show, away from the Broadway show, you lose kind of like the essence of the show. You know, if that makes any sense. And I got to say, I really didn't notice a whole lot they took out. I mean, I then again, I'm not, I don't know the show from front to back, but... You have those rapey vibes between the wolf and Little Red Riding Hood. You have the death. You have the bad parenting. You have the darkness. You know, the infidelity. You have all of that in there. And it's a Disney movie. And yet, I think Rob Marshall was a great director uh, in in terms of handling all those various aspects. 
Because I can totally see somebody doing it wrong, and yet he kept the feeling of it being, you know, the at- the musical atmosphere, the essence going to where all of that stuff that people would be worried about, especially the, the production company Disney, it-, it was just a musical. It just kind of, it-, it didn't like linger in that, you know, there are just layers to it. And so it actually worked. I still had problems with this movie, though I did enjoy it. Uh, just, I enjoyed it a little bit more than Matt. However, I thought probably about 95% of the performances were absolutely wonderful. I thought Chris Pine, he, I mean, Agony, that is my favorite song. And I was worried that he was going to butcher it because I have never heard him sing. And that was my favorite part of the movie. Not only was it hilarious, but the interplay between the two princes and his voice was just, I mean, I think I will go as far as to say it was outstanding because I can't think of the last, maybe since Rent. I think Rent might have been the last musical movie that came out where most of the singing was actually really, really good. Phantom of the Opera, you had to deal with Gerard Butler. With Les Mis, you had to deal with Russell Crowe and a couple other actors, you know. But this was pretty solid all around in the singing department. And again, it lived up to a lot of expectation, especially with uh, the dark tones to it. So the things that I didn't care for it is that the, the movie mimics the stage show's zippy first act and the more darkness and serious tone that the stage show took on during its second act. And especially what turns dark are the characters, the story, the songs, especially to get more emotional. However, I thought the movie would have benefited by taking some liberties with the storytelling. For example, the transitions at the beginning of the movie. The movie zips and zips and zips. You know, at the same time, it's kind of a dark film right when it starts. Yet, it's trying to zip along like your run-of-the-mill Disney musical. It works in the, you know, in the in the in the stage show because you're limited with effects, you're limited with atmosphere, you're limited with lighting. To whereas with the movie, you can create this really dark and creepy and dull, you know, atmosphere of of these village folk going into these this mysterious wood, or into the mysterious wood. So it kind of takes away from the charm, and I kind of think that's what this movie lacked, was the charm. And then you have the transitioning between the stories, and there's a lot of transitioning through this movie, and it felt like there could have been a better way to do that. It felt forced, it felt rushed, there was no like nice, consistent flow to the transitions. The transitions do get better in the second act, and to me that's when the movie really took off. But... Really, that's my complaint, but it's a big complaint, despite all the other praise that I give the film. Matt gives this movie 3. I give this one 3.5 out of 5. Uh, where would you like to go from here, sir? Well, we gotta save the best for last and go with Big Eyes next. Alrighty. Big Eyes big 2014. Eyes. American biographical comedy drama film directed by Tim Burton stars Amy Adams and Christoph Waltz Uh, this is focusing on the marriage and subsequent courtroom demise of Margaret Keene and Walter Keene basically Margaret Keene is a artist who's who who did some really great work that was considered very seminal uh, in the 50s. And 
how her husband basically uh, took credit for it all. Um, the they go back and forth. The re- initially the arrangement kind of works in a quirky sort of way, but eventually, of course, she wants some recognition. He says no. They go and eventually go to court over the whole thing, where they have some very interesting rigmarole and lots of interplay and uh, a very grand conclusion that I will not spoil, uh, all based on a true story, of course. So if you don't know about it, then you're definitely going to be tickled by the end of it. Um, for me... You, I don't think you could have picked a better couple uh, than Christoph Waltz and Amy Adams. Um, just the... I mean, you look at the interplay between these two people, and you would have literally thought that they researched being a <laughs> couple <laughs> at some point. Together, you know. Um, I completely believed in everything there. That being said, um, this is a lot more uh, Edward Scissorhands-esque. It's not as dark and bleak as most of Tim Burton's things. Uh, and Well, bleak's the wrong word, but dark is definitely the right word. Um, In terms of tone and visual style, uh, it's definitely dark in the drama aspects of it, and it is definitely dark in the treatment of Walter Keane via, you know, his wife, Margaret. Um, But the visual style, the art, the cinematography, all come uh, in a much brighter package, a la Edward Scissorhands. To that end, I think it serves the film very well. Um, but I really kind of felt like this was a movie that uh, probably runs about 10 to 15 minutes too long. Um, I don't think most people are going to mind so much, but once you kind of start seeing where this is going to go, you kind of are ready for it to happen. Um, you want the courtroom... You want what happens in court to play out. You you want them to get there already. And again, it's not by a whole lot. 10 to 15 minutes. And the movie's just... The movie's only about an hour and 40 minutes to begin with. But sometimes when you get to things that are that crucial, instead of... The drawing... Drawing it out doesn't usually... Doesn't usually help because the style and the path that the film is taking lends itself to a faster resolution once the ball gets rolling. Um, It's got a tremendous setup and a great payoff. I think that's just um, timing issues in getting between, say, the the second third of the film and the last fourth of the film. Um, Overall, still a lot of fun. Did like the movie. Three and a half stars. Take it away, Tim. I thought this was a really good movie. Uh, I thought this was Tim Burton's best flick since Sweeney Todd in 2007. And that's a good seven, eight years ago. So that's saying a lot on my part, I think. it's This movie, like what Matt said, is definitely different from Burton's other uh, more gothic and atmosphere-y you know, flicks like Beetlejuice and Edward Scissorhands and 
you know, it's not it's not as dark. There's no darkness to this movie at all. I mean, even the what you could call the bad guy of the movie isn't really dark. He is definitely it's definitely more of a more of a human badness, more human qualities, and it is fantasy and kind of over the top fairy tale ish than his other villains. I don't know, but it's just different. Big Eyes was genuinely entertaining. It was a great film. I mean, there was an in- it was an interesting true story, and these were really fun characters. They were these were fun people to watch. You know, the cinematography was beautiful. Uh, the paintings within the movie uh, that she uh, Keen uh, the the his wife actually paints are wonderful. In fact, I was watching and I realized my grandmother has some of her paintings. She has three of them. She has one of the the girl, the sad girl wearing the blue dress, uh, which you see it a lot in the movie. She has another one with a girl wearing the pink ballerina dress, and she has the other one of the little boy wearing the clown outfit, holding the clown mask off to the side with a tear coming down. And so, to me, I think that just kind of elevated the movie a little bit because I kind of grew up around those paintings. I mean, most of those paintings are in the powder rooms of uh, my grandmother at my grandmother's house. So it was just kind of really interesting to see where those actually came from because they actually kind of creeped me out whenever I was a young a young lad growing up in Texas. But uh, yeah, so I mean, this was just an entertaining movie. And on top of that, it's a true story. It's kind of amazing. I had no idea this took place. Though I really like this movie, what to some people, again, will consider me being really nitpicky and it might not really matter to other people, but I thought the tempo or maybe the pace of the film gets a little bit awkward towards the end. And it took me a little bit out of the movie. It goes from being a unique film with, uh, I mean, you definitely notice Tim Burton's flair. I mean, Tim Burton is definitely present in this movie. You know, there are these little things, these little touches that only Tim Burton can add to his film. Though the movie is an atmospheric and gothic his presence is definitely felt, like I said. But the movie does become generic, like a generic courtroom film towards the end of the movie. So maybe the last 20, 15, 20 minutes of the movie, and I guess this can also tie into what Matt was talking about earlier about the movie uh, going on too long. I just thought the resolution was kind of rushed. There could have been more to play with. It could have just been reworked a little bit more to fit with the first, I don't know, maybe 85% of the movie. But all in all, I was really entertained, and I give this one 4.5 out of 5. 4.5 out of 5. Look at you go, sir. Um, All right. Then I guess that's going to leave us with... Inherent Vice. The 2014 crime comedy drama film based on the book by the same name, written by Thomas Pinchon. Uh, stars Joaquin Phoenix, Josh Brolin, Owen Wilson. Oh, good God. If they live in Hollywood, they're in this fucking movie. Um, this takes place in a fictional community called Gordita Beach in 1970. Um, and follows the exploits of Doc who goes at the behest of his ex-girlfriend to look into a case involving her uh, current lover. From there, it goes into a big, twisty, turny uh, thing that is equal to me, equal parts Big Lebowski and 
get shorty. Now, I don't mean that to be a slam on the film in any way, shape, or form. Um, I just think that this uh, film is a marriage of these two kind of plot lines and styles of characters and filmmaking to a certain extent. Now, again, this is based on a book, so the source material is also very 70s, uh, somewhat drug-induced, but not quite to the extent that the film is. uh, In doing a little bit of research on the book that this film is based on, um, to that end, it does a good job of recreating all the twists and turns the book takes. It also does a good job of... um, of allowing characters the space to be the characters they're designed to be. That's very hard to translate from a book to a movie, and this movie does it very, very well. The problem is is that the way they introduce these characters and bring the twists and turns that allow the characters to do the things that they do so well drifts from the book in such a way that it's... You could probably try and rename this film Coherent Vice because it's rather incoherent. Um, It works to the degree that it's meant to kind of keep you guessing a little bit and to prevent you, and I think artificially so, from solving or trying to work out what's really going on. But at the same time, it's a fun ride while it does it. The only problem for me is that I need a little bit more coherence than what this film provided. I think that this is going to be a very niche film in terms of uh, long-term status. I think this is going to be an ultimate, one of the ultimate cult films that are ever out there. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I think the cult will be large. But um, I don't think this is something that's going to find universal appeal. And there has actually, while it's got a pretty good rating, I want to say it's in the 70s, uh, maybe even 79 on Rotten Tomatoes, the vehemence with which critics... It's like, I think it's 71%. 71, so not even thank 79. You, 71. The vehemence with which critics who don't like the film express their dislike shows just exactly how polarizing the film can be. I think... I will say this. I'm actually interested in this book now. I think I would like to try and tackle this book um, for myself to really kind of see the differences that were laid out. But based on what I could surmise from my research on the book versus the film and having watched the film, uh, the film is interesting. There's definitely fun to the film, but overall still just kind of better than okay. I come in at 2.75 on this film. Um, It's not for everybody, but I think there will be supporters of this film out there. Um, Tim, bring us home, sir. Alrighty, so I saw this movie uh, during about a week ago, and I think I had one too many martinis to that than I should have while going into this movie because I thought it was rather intriguing, though I didn't quite understand it. I once I the first time I saw it I right when I got the movie like I know exactly what they're going for the movie was over so I was like well shit so I made it a point to go see the movie yesterday so uh, the movie to me was intriguing enough to see it a second time before I recorded so I can give it uh, you know the the proper 
rating because unlike Interstellar, I actually wanted to watch this movie a second time within <laughs> within a few days. So yeah, I mean, it was just it's like to me, it's like reading a book. You know, like what Matt said, this movie was adapted closely to the book, and a big chunk of the dialogue actually came from the book. Especially the narration, and what I thought was interesting is that PTA added the narration as an afterthought, because he felt without the narration, the whole essence of Thomas Pynchon wouldn't come across in the movie, and I gotta say, that was a good call on his part. PTA, Paul Thomas Anderson, is a great filmmaker. A lot of people love uh, The Master. I thought it was a good movie, but I didn't think it was great. I love me Magnolia, and I absolutely love Boogie Nights. That is one of my all-time favorite films. It's well-made, It you know, has great music, and believe it or not, that is Paul Thomas Anderson's, uh, one of his very first movies that he made. This movie, if you had to compare this movie to any of his previous films, I would compare it to Boogie Nights. It's not as good, it's not as well-made, I guess, but the movie is interesting, and it has that music flair that he added, or that he incorporated into Boogie Nights. You know, this movie has a great soundtrack. A lot of the songs you've probably never heard of, but it's in this movie. And with that, you have great visuals. At times, it feels like you're looking at a, you know, a, a piece of art, you know, a canvas of, uh, you know, of a, of, a, of a picture that was taken in the 1960s or early 1970s. It was just beautifully made. Though, yes, there's definitely incoherence to the movie. But when I went and saw it a second time yesterday, I picked up on more things. I got what the movie was trying to convey. I got the story uh, outlines. I, I mean, I remembered people's names. So, I, I mean, because I thought, wait, I mean, I thought he was supposed to be finding this guy. I thought that guy was this guy and this and this. And, you know, I was able to kind of unjumble all the jumbleness that, you know, the first viewing caused. And... So I enjoyed it a lot more. Yeah, and again, this movie does play like a book. You know, this is definitely one of those character movies. You know, there these are developed characters. One of my favorite lines is when, uh, is when the narrator is describing Josh Brolin's character. He has a twinkle in his eye that says, that is anti-civil rights or just something like that. And it's like that's a perfect way to describe his character. And Josh Brolin played it completely. This movie is a very nuanced movie. If you're not one that likes to sit down and, you know, and, and, and enjoy a longer movie, you're probably going to miss some of it. I mean, there's just a lot of, I mean, a lot of people left the movie whenever I went and saw it because they didn't want to sit and watch the movie. They didn't want to let the movie envelop them. They didn't want to be lost in the story, you know, laugh at the little things that Joaquin Phoenix does. And he does, a lot of his nuances and a lot of his mannerisms are hilarious. Why? Because during the entire movie, he is on drugs. And I think that's what some people don't understand, is that this movie is kind of from his point of view. I mean, you are following him, you're not following anybody else. So you're experiencing it through him, that's why you have a lot of the weird music. So in a way, you're taking the drugs with him. So that's why whenever you're watching a scene... And some of the things that he is saying doesn't make any sense. Well, it's because, you know, he just did a line or some, of something. You know, he took some acid. But the problem with that, and this goes along with the incoherence that Matt was talking about, and I definitely agree with, is that the story relies a lot on the narrator. And if you're not listening carefully, and it's all about listening, and a lot of the stuff happens really fast, you'll miss a lot of the setup. That comes right before a scene begins, 
or right when a scene ends and transitions into the next scene. Like there's a scene when he's walking into a party and she said, oh, well, the last time Doc and -and so-and-so took the drugs, they went into this place and they're walking in that place and there's only one way they can describe the atmosphere and the narrator's describing the atmosphere. Well, some people don't understand is she is describing that scene. So that is setting the tone, that is setting the mood. And then, you know, the dialogue takes place, the scene takes off and you as the audience need to go along for the ride. And... Again, I didn't realize that until the last 20 minutes or the last 30, 45 minutes of the first showing. And so I picked up on it a little bit more when I saw it the second time. However, I think if I saw it a third time, I might give it a better rating. But as of right now, my rating is going to stay at 3.75 out of 5. I was just wanting you to know I found it. <laughs> All right. Well, then I guess that brings us to the end of the movies and the impromptu musical hoedown, mouth organ style. Next week's movies are going to be Black Hat, Wild, and American Sniper. So, I think that brings us to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on. All right. Well, the music you've been listening to primarily has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both, slash Cries of Solace. The discussion's music, of course, comes to us from MuseOpen.org. And we, of course, are the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can also send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLS cast. You can follow me, Matt, on Twitter at nittwit12345. You can follow the information superhighway and see if you can thumb a ride to where Tim is at on Twitter. And you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Dwayne Johnson, I get to say this. If I had to describe myself to an alien, I'd say I was bigger than the average human, enjoy a drink or two with a good meal, and have a bigger head than most. I'd also say I'm really handsome, especially if they were a female alien. And this is Tim signing off with... 